The Lord be with you. The whole world has been waiting, and we've all wanted to hear what the, this Lord, the Son of Man, born of the Virgin Mary, the Son of David, Emmanuel, the Christ, what will this Christ at long last settle in and say when he sits down with the people, when he finally speaks up? Humanity's been waiting and even as so many other voices have had their say. In these weeks of Epiphany, we've already heard some of those voices. We've heard the revealing, inbreaking presence of God in so many ways. In the first chapters of Matthew's gospel story, where side characters have had an opportunity to speak. Across the immense vacuum of space, light years away, a star in the eastern sky, announced the arrival of the Christ child. And then in response, Persian sages, such unexpected guests from distant lands, got to speak with wonder and anticipation, falling down in worship and adoration, presenting the child with such precious gifts. And then John the baptizer, He got to see Jesus coming up from the water as a voice from heaven proclaimed him a beloved, pleasing son. The whole event highlighted as a dove descended upon Jesus. God's blessing descending like poetry. So then after all that, Jesus took a little walk by the lakeside, repeating the refrain, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Say more. Please, Jesus, say more. Jesus took time to stop in at the lakeside to call some fishermen disciples. I'm putting together a team. You will be witnesses and accomplices in this new kingdom. Fishers of people whatever that means. I'm in, they say, as these fresh recruits drop their nets and step out of the boat to follow the rabbi down an unknown road, chasing after this astonishing teacher and healer. But then, finally, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, we get to see some of the substance of this message about this new kingdom. And it's a lot. It's a lot. There's a great collection of sayings and lessons and observations about life and death, moral teachings about good and evil, faith and practice, ethics and purity of heart, humanity and the kingdom of heaven. And it's all been strung together to form one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, fondly known as the Sermon on the Mount. And it all starts when the crowd shows up. There's excitement about this traveling holy man who proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. And as it spread among the people, a crowd gathers. And the text tells us that seeing the crowds, Jesus sat and began to teach. There's something in this crowd that prompts these lessons, something in that smelly, 
noisy, dusty, dirty gathering of humanity. Good folks making their way. There's laborers and there's merchants and there's young and there's old and there's honest folks. There's con artists and pickpockets. There's exploiters. There's broken people. Regular folks pressed into crush of it all with the opportunists and the scoundrels. Like people pouring out of a sporting event or crammed together on a public bus. The crowd. It's just another sampling of the human race. Individuals that have been squeezed together by geography and history and economics and politics and ethnicity and urban planning. Just people making their way. A crowd is a messy compromise of your personal space. It's a place where sometimes you just need to survive It is the very best of us, and it is the very worst of us. A crowd can cry out in in celebration, and the wrong crowd can trample people underfoot. Sometimes a crowd can turn into a mob. So what does the holy man on the mountain teach the crowd? What does Jesus finally say? Well, it's beautiful, and it's strange, It's a collection of lessons that are both practical and spectacular. They're difficult and they're harsh sometimes. They're shocking and kind of a little obvious, too. Jesus' moral standard is strict. It's intense. It doesn't make room for compromise or half measures, if that's what you're hoping for. The holy man on the mountain isn't letting anyone off the hook because Jesus' standards for our personal interactions, they're intense. Be true to your word. Make peace. Be merciful. Shine your light in this dark world and give the world its flavor. Curb your anger and your lustful thoughts. Love Your enemies, he says, turn the other cheek. Give everyone, give everyone money if they beg from you. Give away your jacket. Go the second mile. And in case you're wondering, there's got to be some wiggle room. Maybe there's some wiggle room in here. Jesus caps off chapter 5 with the phrase, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, so that's all. The the wisdom from the holy man on the mountain. That's the secret. I just need to be a perfect specimen of realized humanity. Why hadn't I thought of that? Of course. Of course. Say less, please, Jesus. Say less. To be fair, though, it's not like we should have expected Jesus to say something else. You know, practice a little lust with a light sprinkling of adultery or exploitation now and then. Just take it easy, okay? Or you can hate, let's say, one enemy in ten. And if you could keep the murdering to a minimum, that'd be nice, thanks. Even still, 
For generations now, church folk have been trying to negotiate with this passage. Different traditions and different passages have argued about just how much did Jesus really mean all of this stuff. All of this? This intense Jesus description of life lived out in balance and loving and kindness and forgiveness and generosity, sexual wholeness and purity of heart. Is this even doable, Jesus? Is this a standard that we can reach? Maybe it's just the way that certain holy men and women might live. The rest of us, not so much. Maybe this sermon is just a broad strokes condemnation of everything that we are. Jesus' way of rubbing our faces in the mess that we make day after day. It's a piercing spotlight on our varieties of guilt and shame. Maybe this is just a kind of rhetorical hypothetical. Jesus' exaggeration to make a point. Of course, you cannot live this way. As for me, though, I stand with the crowd of folks that believe that Jesus really meant it. All of it. The Son of Man, with his deep understanding of the human condition, knows well enough all the ways that we destroy ourselves. The habits of degradation and humiliation we visit upon one another, whether it's careless or intentional or cruel or accidental or reckless or apathetic, take your pick. Of course, the Son of Man calls us to paths of peace and courage and love, a way of justice and mercy and humility. The invitation to follow this Jesus to live with such selfish courage, it's, it's astonishing. It's, it's beautiful. It's overwhelming. What a dream. What a world that Jesus dreams of. But considering the mess we find ourselves in, and all the ways that we blow this up, the messes that we make every single day, how can we take this in? How can we live up to any of this? Where's the good part, Jesus? Can we skip to the good part, please? Now, those of you who are paying attention have probably noticed that I've already skipped right past the text that we actually read today. The passage of scripture that we actually heard someone read in this room. The opening verses of Matthew chapter 5. Eight blessings. Eight promises of a loving God. Holy words that hang in the air Words that frame and guide the entire rest of the sermon. I can't listen to the rest of the sermon without these first blessing words. As far as I can tell, without those first blessed verses, the purity and the clarity and the weight of the rest of Jesus' sermon would crush us completely. Because Jesus' unflinching call to wholeness is preceded by the astonishing grace and mercy and loving kindness of our Creator. 
Thank God for those blessing words, lovingly known as the Beatitudes. Of those eight blessings, the first four speak to our very urgent reality. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The Son of Man, with his intimate understanding of the human condition, knows well enough all the ways that we have been damaged and degraded, crushed by this world, let down by others and by our own deficiencies. Our own failings and regrets are all too clear to us. Poor in spirit people, broken hearted people, mourning and disappointed people, check, check, check. Folks who find themselves starving for a morsel of goodness in their lives. These are the people that God sees, God names, God recognizes and calls them blessed. These are the ones included in this new way. Jesus knows what it is to have a broken heart. He knows our littleness and our shame. Jesus knows how we dream of a better world, one that's more just and merciful and kind. And before he asks anything of that messy crowd, Jesus assures the poor in spirit, the brokenhearted, the meek, and the heart-hungry ones that they are not forgotten. The furthest thing from it, in fact. These are the first people that Jesus speaks of when he shares the dream of God with that messy crowd. For around 2,000 years now, that crowd has swollen and burst and spread out across the globe. And in all these centuries, we've stumbled, we've trampled, we've scrambled past one another. We heard those words in your prayer this morning, Warren. More than ever, our world needs people who work for and seek justice for a wounded earth and mercy for weary souls. We are not off the hook. We need humility and wisdom from our leaders more than ever. This is no small thing, and this work is too big for any one of us. These last few years sure have squeezed us, made some of this so abundantly clear. Take a walk in the city streets or get in line at your grocery store. Just this morning, Buffy and I were across the street at Savon picking up some groceries, and we watched two security guards manhandle and tackle a shoplifter who was clearly a mentally ill, homeless person. And I stopped and I said to the man, you are not paid enough money to do this work. And I thought of the wealthy grocery store owner and I thought of us shoppers who just 
had to sit and watch that, and I thought of the man lying on the ground who left his boot as he walked away in minus 20. And I thought of those men paid chump change to treat another person like this, and I thought, this is the city's heartbreak. This is the heart sickness and poverty of spirit of all of us. These weren't just faces in the crowd, but were they blessed, these people? These people who catch God's eye? The kingdom of heaven people? These are these people? When we look at those folks, do we see them as blessed ones? With these same folks in mind, Jesus speaks to the crowd of people called the church. That's our little crew, a little outpost here on 109th Street. People called to live this way, this audacious, crazy, unflinching commitment to the way of love and mercy, making peace and acting love. Because we have been recipients of so much Grace and mercy, how can it not spill over? Friends, we are witnesses and we are accomplices in the new kingdom and that makes us keepers of people. And it's heavy work even as we carry our own broken hearts. Even as we mourn and hunger and thirst with our own fragile souls. Do we see ourselves, too, as those blessed ones? Jesus tells us that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled. Amen. Thanks be to God.